first letter of John. We'll be reading the verses 1 through 4 of 1 John chapter 1. First John 1, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of God. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So far from the word of God. Let us sing in preparation for God's word, God's word to be preached. Let's sing from hymn 61, stanza 1. That we're focusing on is also the, the four verses that we have just read. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, it's a very short text that we have read, but such is also the nature of the first letter and the other letters of John. They're rich, they're short, they're almost little blurbs, but the more you dig into them, the more riches you find. And that's also what makes the letters of John such wonderful pieces of Scripture to meditate upon as we prepare ourselves to partake of the Lord's Supper. You'll notice John's style, if you've read, this, if you've read the Bible for many years, you, you're probably aware of this. John's style is very different from the other biblical authors. Compare him with Paul. Paul, as Reformed churches, we love Paul because Paul is so linear. He cuts a straight line working from point A. Once he's established that point, that brings him to point B and then to point C. And he makes a clear, straightforward argument from beginning to end. And that's so helpful for us as Reformed churches, putting our doctrine together and so forth. But John, John has a very different approach and what makes John so, so wonderful for us as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper is that unlike Paul, John typically starts with the core message of the gospel. That's right where he starts, and then he always stays very close to it. He repeats it over and over. He works around it. He highlights how it changes this aspect of life, or it changes that aspect of life, or how it shows God's glory in this sense, and then how it shows God's glory in another sense. And that's what we also want to do as we prepare ourselves to partake in the Lord's Supper. We're not here because we don't know the truth. We're here because we already know and understand the truth. And now we want to be encouraged. We want to be strengthened. We want to regain our perspective again. We want to be reminded of why Christ matters so much for our lives, so much for eternity 
We're here because we know the gospel. We believe the gospel. And so we want to be reminded of God's glory and God's mercy towards us sinners. We want to be filled with joy again, with courage and with strength. So what we'll do then this morning is just very briefly reflect on these four verses from John as we prepare ourselves to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Now you'll notice verses 1 through 3 are one long sentence. I told the catechism students last week that they that the memory work was easy because it was just one sentence, and one of the uh, students reminded me that in Scripture sometimes sentences are quite long, and that's also the case with, with this text here. Verses 1 through 3 are one long sentence, and they're also an unusual sentence because they're out of order. Maybe you noticed that. John starts with the object. Usually, you would, you would start with uh, the, the subject or a verb, at least, but he starts with the object. So if you were to paraphrase the sentence, it's, we proclaim that which was from the beginning. But he wants our attention to be fixed on that object, that which was from the beginning. So he starts the sentence with those words. He wants the church to be asking, what is that? What is it that was right there at the beginning? What's the first thing that they heard that brought them to become believers? What was the gospel message that they first knew and understood? Whatever that is, and he doesn't tell us right away, he says it's something that has been, been heard and even seen and even touched. So it's, it's solid. The, the church's foundation, the, the foundation of the faith of the church is built on that solid foundation, something that was seen and heard and even touched by eyewitnesses who attested to it, eyewitnesses like John and the other apostles. And that's important for us. That's key as we reflect on the truths of the gospel. Whatever we learn as Christians, however our faith might grow or develop or change, we must never, ever lose sight of the message that the eyewitnesses themselves brought us in Scripture. John wants us to keep that foremost. Whatever teachers might come into your midst, whatever opinions might prevail in your church, don't forget what you heard from the beginning. And in fact, John is even calling us to an even earlier beginning. He's very deliberately ambiguous with these words in the beginning. Obviously, anyone who knows Scripture is reminded of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. And that's also the way John started his gospel. In the beginning was the word. That's the gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. So this beginning can mean a lot of things, and John is doing that on purpose. When he wrote, when he wrote the gospel of John, he also talked about the beginning. He's imitating that pattern of Scripture. So he's not just calling us to remember the beginning of our faith, the beginning of the gospel when it was first preached to us, but he's also saying that faith has a beginning in eternity past. The word that you heard from us in the beginning is what we ourselves heard in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and it has its roots in the beginning of time itself. It's important to remember as we celebrate the Lord's Supper also today. 
The Lord Jesus was with God in eternity from the very beginning of time. And so when he invites us to his table, he doesn't just invite us into this this passing moment of fellowship that we have together. No, he invites us to himself, who is the core of our faith and also our tie to eternity past with the Father. The Son and the Father always loved each other since eternity. And so Christ invites us into that relationship that brings us all the way back to the beginning of time itself. When we come to share in the Lord's table, we come to share in Christ. And when we share in Him, we share in the life that existed right from the beginning of the world. So that's the first thing that John wants to draw our attention to. What's our roots? What's the beginning of our faith? And where does it take us all the way to the beginning of time? Secondly, and and very importantly, that message of eternal life was revealed. He really wants to emphasize this. It was revealed in history in the person of Jesus Christ. Christianity isn't just a philosophy or a way of thinking that somehow connects us with eternal ideas. We're not Buddhists that way. No, the reason that we share in eternal life, the only reason, is because that life was revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 2, that life, the life was made manifest, or another way to translate that, revealed, and we have seen it, the eternal life, which was with the Father and made manifest to us. It's because Christ came into our world that our faith has that rock-solid foundation. Christianity is, it's good to remember, Christianity is a deeply historical faith. God gave the apostles that unique role of being eyewitnesses. And the only reason that we believe is because Christ came and broke into our history and stepped into our world. And so John is saying, we were there. We saw him. We heard him. We even touched him with our hands. We listened to his teaching. We saw him do miracles. We saw him teach people. And we ultimately saw him die for our sins on the cross. And then even three days later, we saw him rise from the dead. We even touched his hands after he had risen. And he's saying, this is the message that you heard from the beginning. It's solid. And that's our foundation. Don't let go of it. The only reason that we can have eternal life is because God chose to reveal it to us by sending Jesus Christ into the world. It's what Christ himself said too. I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And so if he hadn't come, there would be no access to God the Father Thirdly, John says, the the eternal life which was in the beginning and was revealed to us is what we also now proclaim to you. This is how the gospel goes out. God reveals it to eyewitnesses who then have the task of proclaiming it. And that's what John says he's doing. We have a calling, he says, from God, an apostleship to bring to you that message of eternal life. The Lord then revealed himself to those 12 disciples and to the Apostle Paul, and not for them simply to 
enjoy that truth or hold on to it for themselves. He revealed it to them so that they would in turn proclaim it and also pass it down to us through Scripture. You can notice in in verses 2 and and 3 that John uses two separate words for this. In verse 2 he says, we testify to it. That's the language of eyewitnesses. What we've seen, we're now testifying to you. And then in verse 3 he says, we proclaim it. And the word there is, is, has the sense of official proclamation, like when a messenger comes from a king. So their authority, it's rooted not just in the fact that they saw the Lord Jesus and touched him and heard him, but also in the fact that they have a commission from him to go and proclaim to us. And so we're also here to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And the reason that we're able to do so is because we have the testimony of the disciples who were there at the First Supper, who saw and received the bread from the Lord's hands, who heard his instructions to celebrate this until he comes. That's the root, the foundation also for our faith and our practice. And so then the Lord Jesus also gave them that divine commission to go, to teach it, to write it into Scripture, to pass it on to us. Fourth, John says, We proclaim this message to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, he says, Our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. This is so important. This is the goal of gospel proclamation, fellowship. That's what motivated John to write this letter and to proclaim the message of eternal life so that that church that he was writing to or the the several churches that he was writing to could share in that same fellowship that he and the other disciples enjoyed with God the Father and with the Son. Fellowship, it's it's a very Christian word. It's what we call, what we, what, we, what we describe it when people are bound together by the same spirit, the same purpose, the same love. People who root for the same team in a sport have fellowship to a certain degree, even though it might be a superficial one. Soldiers who fight together on the battlefield, they have a, a certain fellowship that holds them together. But Christians who believe the gospel, who share an eternal life together, they have the deepest fellowship of all. So John and the other apostles, they shared their testimony because it was their heart's desire that the churches that they were writing to, and also us today, would be able to share in that same fellowship that they were enjoying with God the Father and with the Son. Now, notice also, John makes it very clear that the fellowship that he's inviting the church into is not, in the first place, his own fellowship. It's not one that comes from him. And that's really important for the church to understand today as well. When we also celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's true, we absolutely rejoice in the joy that we get to be together as as a congregation, as a family even. But the fellowship that we have together is not one that's simply rooted in ourselves. We're not a social club. We don't just get together because it seems like a nice thing to do. We didn't just decide to get together and be a church. No, we have fellowship with one another because we've been invited into one in the same fellowship with God the Father. 
That's, that's John's point as well. We have fellowship, and the root of our fellowship is with God. And that's what he wants to invite the church into as well. So that's also then what binds us together. And you see the very same thing even in, in the very beginning of the church. In Acts 2, Peter preaches the gospel, and it says 3,000 people believed. And then the first thing that, that, it, that you can see them do is devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread and prayers together. It's the Christians' instinctive response to the gospel. They immediately come together. Christians recognize, if I have fellowship with God the Father, and if someone else also has fellowship with God the Father, then we too must have fellowship together. Christians immediately then come together as a family. If we're going to spend eternity together in the presence of God, then how good and pleasant it is to spend fellowship together here on earth. It's like what David says in Psalm 16, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And then fifth and finally, consider the very last verse, verse 4, where he says, We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. If you have a New King James, your Bible will say, we're writing these things so that your joy may be complete. That's because there's a a bit of a difference in the original manuscripts. But the best and, and the oldest manuscripts do have it here, like you see in the ESV. And that's the best, the best case can be made for that translation as well. It seems like a strange expression. You might have expected John to say, we're writing these things so that your joy may be complete. But he says we're writing these things so that our joy, his and and the other apostles' joy, may be complete because he wants the church to know it was his joy, his pleasure to bring them into the knowledge of the gospel and into fellowship with God like he was himself. It was his joy that motivated him to proclaim the gospel. You think of all the suffering that John went through, all the suffering that the Apostle Paul also went through with the whippings and the beatings and the hunger, the starvation, the cold, all the sickness that he describes. And the reason he went through it was for joy. It was joy that, the, that motivated the Apostles to bring the gospel to us. It's that joy that he already had with the Father and Son and the pure pleasure of inviting other believers into that same joy. They say misery loves company, but joy loves company even more strongly. And so, brothers and sisters, as we come to partake of the Lord's Supper, of the table of Christ himself, let us also make it our joy and our pleasure to welcome one another to the same table. Amen. Let's respond by singing together from Psalm 133.